0: It allows you to actually own something, right? You know, nothing in this universe you can really own apart from uh, your body, your mind, and, and now Bitcoin, uh, you know, can't be seized uh, if it's sitting in your head, right? And so uh, it really enables uh, actual ownership over your property, A, and B, it offers this hedge for monetary debasement that has sort of plagued uh, humanity for several, uh, you know, several decades now, particularly with the US dollar and the US dollar system, uh, and obviously it's much worse elsewhere. Hey, everybody. Welcome
1: back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on back again, Joe Consorti. Joe, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me back on, Joe. We might break the space-time continuum with two Joes uh, on the same show, but we'll give it a shot.
1: Yes, yet
0: again. I think this is your maybe your third
1: episode with Blockware at this point. Yes.
0: Yeah, I came on at some point last... Uh, well, I came on twice last year, um, and then I came on... I don't know what I, we talked about the first time. The second time we talked about... The whole FTX debacle, the speculative thing. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Kind of on that note, is Binance on the cusp of being
0: FTX 2.0? That's a great question. Binance is an extremely shady business. I don't think I'm, you know, telling any tales out of school when I say that. extremely old timey expression. I don't know why I chose to use that one, Uh, but I, I think it's really no secret that Binance is a very shady business. If you look up where they're incorporated, you find several different answers, right? They were a company that was founded in China and then they moved to Japan in 2017. And now supposedly they're in Malta, Europe, uh, in, in several other different places. And really it's, it's difficult to find out where they're incorporated. And so as a customer, you really have no idea what sort of deposit insurance at the government level is protecting you. If any, um, in terms of, you know, deposit insurance, making sure that what you deposit on a platform can actually be backed if that uh, platform goes kaput, uh, the gold standard is really FDIC insurance. And, you know, A, uh, basically no crypto, no Bitcoin platform actually has FDIC insurance for your Bitcoin, crypto, whatever, uh, because of the risks associated with it and the fact that Bitcoin is yet to be really incorporated to the regulatory purview. Um but uh, but Binance specifically, uh, you know, it it has none. It's extremely opaque, and so uh, any money that is on Binance, it's really. Um, up for debate whether or not it's yours. And in the eyes of the law, it isn't, right? You have no protection of Binance. The exchange goes insolvent, goes under for whatever reason. Uh, and we also have no idea where it's incorporated, right? So it's not, you don't have FDIC insurance, uh, any of these things. There are actually several lawsuits going on right now. I don't know if it's with Binance or somebody else where they claim that they had FDIC insurance on their deposits, and they don't. Uh, and so it's, it's really amazing what uh, what consumers think uh the the level of safety is with these platforms because it is much much lower than has been assumed historically and thankfully uh over the last year consumers have really learned that the hard way uh and thankfully for myself right i had no money on any of these institutions I think any uh, sovereign-minded person or individual with four brain cells to rub together and understands what Bitcoin is and why it was created, understands the importance of taking your money off all these exchanges. But really, Binance has been, not only do we not know where they're incorporated, they don't have any deposit insurance, um, but frankly, um, their founder has been engaging in really, really odd behavior on Twitter. Again, that's no secret to anybody. He constantly is posting photos of himself holding up the number four, uh, and then he captions it four. Um, I don't know what that's about. And then uh, very, very frequently, the phrase has been funds are S-A-F-U. Um, S-A-F-U. I don't know what that's about either, but that's been going on for several years now. That's a thing that's been happening since 2016, 2017, when Binance was first launched, funds are Seifu. And they really sort of project strength outwardly. They tweet very frequently, funds are Seifu. They have something called a Seifu uh, vault or a Seifu account that is essentially this emergency fund that they're you know they're filling up with uh, reserves um, I don't know it, you know it passed uh, su- some some mark I believe it's in the eight figure uh, uh, eight figure territory now but uh, or, or actually uh, uh, nine or ten figures now but even still why why would a company like binance and binance actually claims it doesn't have any Uh, It doesn't have any liabilities, which is an extremely silly thing to say publicly, and they've said it repeatedly publicly. So there's in a. But Binance is basically projecting that it has no loans outstanding. It's never lent any money to any counterparty. Then why on earth would you need an emergency fund, right? Why would you need to be creating uh, an emergency backup fund uh, to ensure that customers can easily take? Uh, redeem their deposits unless their deposits weren't with you. So that was the question. And as it turns out, uh, it's because Binance was rehypothecating customer collateral, right? When uh, uh, a user deposits money with Binance, um, you know, Binance has their uh, money. And the assumption is that Binance is holding that one-to-one. But that wasn't the case. As it turns out, Binance was lending out one of its own uh, stablecoins that it created BUSD, um, and essentially it was lending several billion of it out. I, I believe the figure was 1.85 billion to various counterparties, uh, over the course of the last year. Uh, and I'll, I'll send you this chart, uh, when you're editing, so we can splice this in. But, uh, in the month of May, late May, Binance basically emptied all of its, uh, BUSD token, which is the token that it created. Um, when there were still 1.85 billion dollars worth of customer deposits on the platform that 1.8 billion of busd was off the platform and it was lent to other counterparties and then slowly reaccumulated over the course of the next several months and replenished by august but the question remains you know for for a period of time binance was lending out money despite it saying on several occasions that it has no loans never takes on any leverage funds are safe who and so you have an exchange you don't know where it's incorporated there's no deposit insurance it's clearly engaging in this solicitous behavior uh, and there's there's really no way of trusting this institution on any level, right? They're tweeting out very frequently, trying to project strength. They're saying they have no leverage, and clearly we've discovered that this isn't the case. So just as every other exchange throughout 2022 that collapsed was very very sketchy and showing sort of signs that it may not be the most healthy exchange in the universe, that's exactly what's happening with Binance now. Now we don't know the scale. Uh, these operations. This could have been a one-time thing. I highly doubt it. Uh, this could be occurring with a slew of other Binance tokens. We really have no idea. But at the end of the day, you always want to have a very healthy level of skepticism. And this behavior, you can assume they've been doing for quite some time and in other areas. I believe that's a safe assumption to make. And if that assumption is, you know, turns out to be true, you probably don't want to have any money whatsoever on the Binance platform.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think binance ftx and others is kind of showing like a testament to how new this industry really is like people thought ftx was like a very reputable brand you know i had a lot of big names backing it it was a large relatively large company like they grew really fast and had a lot of bitcoin or a lot of crypto at least and then obviously completely imploded and it's like just because these platforms or companies have you know many, many clients or many, many customers and like, it's a global brand. I mean, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be too surprising, I guess, or you should still be extremely cautious that, Hey, like this is a startup. It's just a really big startup. And like when you grow that fast without like, much regular regulatory like overview and oversight i mean things could go really
0: bad In virtually fast. no no regulatory oversight at all yeah you know, there, there there is none and also people you know there's this illusion of safety that comes with the size if you know FTX has, uh, oh, we just reached 50 million clients, 100 million clients, 200 million global clients, jump on board. There's this illusion of safety because we historically associate financial institutions with domestic banks in the United States that have deposit insurance. If everybody runs to the bank and tries to get their money out, rest assured, you'll be able to withdraw all of it. But that's not the case for these big uh, crypto institutions, but they've been sort of leveraging that that human belief, that psychological uh, belief that we tend to fall into that, oh, a lot of people are doing it, therefore it's safe when it you know, couldn't be further from the truth.
1: Yeah. Kind of going off, off that idea of, okay, cust- custodians and, and self-custody, do you think more and more people will learn to self-custody, especially if something goes wrong with Binance? And then also, do you think custodians will become more responsible and maybe
0: more transparent I certainly hope so. I think the logical outcome of any event where you have a custodian that goes belly up is many people uh, on the sidelines, they learn that, wow, self-custody is important if I have any money on any of these exchanges, right? Even if it's a Bitcoin-only exchange, which ostensibly is much more uh, safe, much more robust, um, then... You know the people on the sidelines learn. I better get my money off of my exchange, and so you'd hope that that's the natural thing people learn. Uh, if you observe on-chain data, that that pretty much clearly is is an outcome that is occurring when people witness these things. Uh, you know, volumes of Bitcoin tend to tend to move very very quickly off these exchanges finance included. Um, and for some of the shakier players that threatens their solvency, I'll quote my friend, Dylan LeClaire, or mutual friend, Dylan LeClaire, when he says um, that if an exchange is solvent, it'll be able to meet all withdrawals. And so when it comes to solvency, there's no such thing as FUD, right? Allowed all of the withdrawals to commence, literally drain all of the reserves down to zero. And if the exchange is still solvent, that shows that they're a robust uh, exchange. But at this point in time, you really don't know who's lying and who's being truthful. So the natural outcome of this is you can observe on chain these Bitcoin are flowing away from known exchange wallets in a way, presumably into personal cold storage. Uh, and unfortunately, as I, I was talking about people on the sidelines, but unfortunately, some people learn the hard way. Uh, some people have money on these platforms, and it just disappears overnight, completely uh, completely gone. Uh, and that's a really unfortunate aspect of these things. And as we know, uh, in the case of Mt. Gox, which is still underway and getting settled, uh, you know the 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 theft of all of that Bitcoin uh, is still you know sort of being litigated and so these things can take several years, even decades to, to sort out and especially for for uh, you know platforms like FTX, chances are you're not going to see your money uh, ever again you're, you might see a fraction of it um, with whatever remaining assets they're able to liquidate it. But really, self-custody is extremely important. And and thankfully, there are more and more intuitive, user-friendly self-custody solutions uh, that are coming to market. I know uh, Foundation uh, Devices is a sponsor of your show, and we're good friends of them as well. Um, So devices like The Passport, uh, easily the most user-friendly wallet that is on the market, right? If you know how to, there you go, right there. If you know how to operate a cell phone, um, then you know how to operate a passport. And so really user-friendly devices, such as what uh, Foundation has created with the passport, um, use code blockware for $10 off, I believe, uh, is, uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable. And it's it's the, the main hurdle that comes with self-custody is just normal everyday people getting to use it. Because when you hear... You know cold storage when you hear these terms some people get you know no pun intended but they get cold feet right uh they, they hear all of it they don't they don't want to have anything to do with cold storage all of that it just seems super confusing but if you have uh, a mobile wallet uh, that's better than being on an exchange uh you know obviously it's a hot wallet so you're still susceptible to theft of that should somebody be able to unlock your phone and transfer those funds but it's a step in the right direction And as more user-friendly alternatives are coming to market um, then the more and more self-custody will become a thing, and the less these exchanges will be able to scam consumers by rehypothecating their money. Because the, I, I believe that through time, obviously people will continue keeping their Bitcoin on exchanges. And in order to uh, you know minimize the risk of that being rehypothecated and moved off the platform, um, that, that has to come with regulation, right? Bitcoin... Uh, institutions need to be folded into the regulatory purview. If the SEC is serious about protecting consumers, then it should probably get up on its horse and start taking Bitcoin custody seriously and making sure that these institutions uh, are, are, are properly regulated so that consumers are protected. I think that's one natural outcome of this. I think the other natural outcome is that people... 10 people are going to shift towards these cold storage solutions towards these hot wallets as they become easier to use uh, and foundation is a perfect example of that uh, and you know this is happening in real time this is observable through coins flowing off of exchanges on chain
1: yeah absolutely shout out to foundation uh you can definitely click our link uh below in the video or in the pin comments that was um, one hell sure. of a plug huh <laughs> that was great yeah but no i think you made a, a really interesting point I've heard executives at river and Kraken say, we don't actually want to be holding your Bitcoin per se. Right? Like we, you know, sell Bitcoin and we help you buy Bitcoin, but we don't want to be holding it because we don't make any money off of that. So it's like, if an exchange is like encouraging you to like not withdraw or like limiting withdrawals, that's like a major red flag.
0: Yep, Binance, right? They're saying (laughs) funds are safe. Don't worry. Versus an exchange, exactly like you mentioned, Kraken. Uh, You know, obviously they they have other cryptos on their platform, but they have Bitcoin and they encourage you to withdraw. River, the guys over at River are fantastic. Their CEO is constantly tweeting about self sovereignty, self custody. Here's a, you know, they have tutorials on their website about how to get the coins off, right? You can buy with us and then take it off our platform immediately. Even though River, uh, I know, has a very, very robust uh, uh, cold storage solution for all consumer funds. Uh, and it's really, those are the exchanges you can trust versus the exchanges that say, don't worry, it's all FUD, funds are safe. If funds were safe, exchanges like Binance would be encouraging users to take them off the platform. Like you said, it's a huge red flag for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to some audience questions that we had. So I think before this episode, I we posted on Twitter, we're like, hey, we're having Joe Consorti back on does anybody have any questions for him? So we got three really solid questions that I think are, are worth asking. The first one is talking about the Lightning Network reference rate that you and Nick worked really hard on, or Nick at least uh, started the idea of many, multiple years ago. This uh, audience guy asked a question. He said, OK, the Lightning Network reference rate is a cool concept but it seems highly doubtful routing is ever profitable or deep enough to truly serve as a global risk-free rate of return. So maybe I guess you can explain high level, like what even is the
0: Lightning Network reference rate, and then answer the guy's question. For sure. So I'll explain what LNRR is, and then I'll sort of explain what makes a rate risk-free Um, and what the current suite of risk-free rates is, how Bitcoin could get there. I'm excited for this question. Um, At the Bitcoin layer, the sweatshirt that I'm wearing, uh, the logo you see on the back, And the big neon sign you see behind me we have uh, a primary focus in two things and those are uh, that's rates uh, in global macro more broadly in bitcoin and so we try to integrate those two together as much as possible and one of the first pieces that uh, my colleague nick batia wrote about bitcoin was uh, about this thing called the lightning network reference rate the idea is because individuals can use the lightning network to deploy capital and then earn a rate of return by routing transactions then you could derive an interest rate from that right if there were a uh, a consensus method of calculating an interest rate based off of fee metrics observable to everyone uh, on the lightning network um, that were self-submitted by lightning nodes then you could ostensibly create uh, an interest rate that was derived from bitcoin a bitcoin derived interest rate uh, and it was a, an extremely interesting concept back then, and uh, it's still just as interesting now. Uh, several people are developing methods of actually calculating this and displaying it on their websites, and we're in talks with several of those uh, people right now to actually construct a Lightning Network-derived yield curve, which is a concept that Nick spoke about, and I uh, wrote a another piece on uh uh, within i believe we called the piece time value of lightning network or the time value of lightning network in which i i sort of discussed that if a yield curve you know with a reference rate that is derived using lightning network data uh, uh, a rate of return that can be earned by efficiently allocating bitcoin uh, then off the back of that you could construct a yield curve which is essentially the rate of return you could earn by deploying your Bitcoin on the Lightning Network for certain periods of time. right? If you deploy it for 10 days, you can expect to earn this amount. Um, if, you, if you deploy it for a year, you can expect to earn this amount. And the longer you deploy it for, you have this positively upward sloping curve. Now, what does a yield curve do? Um, it attracts capital allocators. Uh, if you regularly publish a yield curve that shows, hey, you know, if I learn how to efficiently route transactions uh, more so than the guy next to me, um, if I can effectively manage these channels really well, then I could earn a very very solid rate of return. And look at this yield curve through time; these are extremely competitive rates. I have the technical wherewithal to spin up a Lightning node uh, and, and run channels. I'm going to go try this, and that's really you know how you start. a a capital market. That's really how you can attract um, an an extremely large swath of capital that may be waiting on the sidelines, because there is no way to sort of earn a a rate of return that's native to the Bitcoin network itself. And through the Lightning Network, that's really what it provides. Uh, And several of these companies are now uh, beginning to uh, come up with methods of calculating that rate um, and uh, displaying it publicly on their websites. Uh, And that's really what, that's basically what the Lightning Network reference rate is. Now, uh, back to the question of, um, you know, it'll never, never be profitable. Um, And so therefore, Lightning Network reference rate can't be considered, can never be considered a a risk-free rate per se. Um, Risk-free rate uh, obviously comes down to the Uh, the risk profile associated with the counterparty you're talking about. Currently, the risk-free rate is the suite of U.S. Treasuries. Along the U.S. Treasury curve, you could park your capital anywhere from one month all the way out to 30 years. And the reason that it's considered uh, risk-free, namely the shorter tenors are considered risk-free because they incur a lower amount of interest rate risk, is because the U.S. Treasury has never uh, uh, actually defaulted, right? You know, they've, they they defaulted uh, obviously in the past a few times, right? Um, in the 1910s, and then in 1971, of course. But uh, in terms of actually missing a payment, right? If you were a holder of a U.S. Treasury, you know, they haven't nominally defaulted yet, and so that's essentially why it's considered the risk-free rate. You know, it's the most deep it's it's the deepest and most liquid market for. Uh, fixed income securities in the world, and because of that, because of that constant inflow of capital and demand for these uh, these instruments, then you know the the counterparty associated with it as well. Um, you know, chances are they're not going to default, and so that's why the U.S. Treasury curve is considered risk free. Now, what does Bitcoin need in order to sort of achieve that? Uh, uh, moniker of risk free rate. Well, Bitcoin has no counterparty risk, right? The Lightning Network has no counterparty risk. And so uh, uh, already, even though the US government has the lowest counterparty risk relative to any other fixed income issuer at the sovereign level, at the corporate level, all around the world it still has counterparty risk right it has the lowest that's why it's considered risk free but it still has counterparty risk bitcoin doesn't have any of that right there granted there there are other risks associated with deploying capital on the, the lightning network um you know uh, early channel closure inactive peer risks uh, there are a different suite of risks but there is no counterparty risk and and granted you could sort of interpret that as okay the lightning network is more risk free uh, than the the suite of U.S. Treasuries. But then the question becomes, okay, if that's the case, you know, why on earth would I go to the Lightning Network when it's still so illiquid, relatively speaking? Uh, if you go, I, I have the capacity of the Lightning Network in front of me. Um, you know, even still, it's only got uh, roughly uh, uh, 500 billion Sats on the network, and so that is an extremely low amount of satoshis, and you know, a low amount of U.S. dollars it's growing every single day, but still it's relatively illiquid. And I'll agree with the, the commenter who asked that. Um, it's going to take several trillion dollars more uh, to be considered sort of a risk-free method of parking your capital, right? Safety sort of comes in liquidity when we're talking about uh, fixed income markets, right? Um, because fixed income is used to lubricate global finance, right? You borrow against the US Treasuries you have in your portfolio, you can't really borrow against a collateral type that's going to be extremely volatile, like uh, your capital that's parked in the Lightning Network. Uh, Because there are only 500 billion Satoshis, Right, that makes for a lot of collateral volatility. Therefore, it's not a very uh, appealing collateral to borrow against. But- Through time, uh, the capacity is clearly increasing, right? If you take a look, um, you know, this time in 2019, there were only 100 billion sats in the Lightning Network. And as of right now, it still hasn't achieved the the exponential growth profile of something like the Bitcoin price. Uh, But through time, cycle after cycle, uh, as more tools get built on the Lightning Network, uh, ostensibly it will. And so with that additional liquidity uh, comes more safety. And with that safety uh, comes an increased tendency of people looking at the Lightning Network, taking a look at, wow, you know, the, I can get a very, very good, I can charge a very, very good base fee, a great fee rate. Uh, and, and companies who have Lightning Network Explorers that regularly publish a Lightning Network yield curve uh, and also methods of uh, companies that sort of uh, automate a lot of this for you um, then that will attract more capital, more liquidity that's parking the Lightning Network, and that will bring it ostensibly to a more risk-free rate than the suite of US treasuries. And so that's you know long-winded explanation about what makes a risk-free rate and why I agree with the commentary that it's it's not necessarily risk-free as of right now because it doesn't have the liquidity. But through time, as its liquidity amplifies, as it reaches one trillion, and then potentially even you know the U.S. Treasury market is twenty trillion dollars in size. As it comes closer to that, uh, it's going to be seen more as an alternative and less so, sort of an experimental market.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. It's certainly early days for for the lightning network, I, I personally run a lightning node and I earn sats with channels that I've opened. However, like on net, I think even opening my channels with like one sat per, per virtual byte, which is like the cheapest you can open a channel for, I've still like lost money. But like, I have seen like people that are like actually running lightning routing nodes. They actually are earning decent yields right now obviously it takes a lot of time to do that and the network is still like very small and and there's not that many transactions on it yet but i think it's definitely already working right now and like some people are actually earning a decent yield it's just Hard. Like I've spent a decent amount of time on it and I don't know how to like set up channels in the exact right way where I know that there's going to be traffic through those channels that I can route and charge like a pretty high
0: fee for. Exactly. So. And similar to sort of the early days of Bitcoin, it just comes down to who can do this the most efficiently. And as more people do it efficiently, there's going to be increased demand for innovation. Uh, There's going to be more thought, uh, there's gonna be more intellectual uh, capital, uh, obviously human capital, as well as physical capital that flows into the space and figures out how do we do this efficiently? Um, Pretty soon, a decade, two decades from now, you're gonna have people that specialize in lightning liquidity management. That's going to be a position. Uh, And frankly, it's probably gonna be offered at some of the the biggest banks in the United States and the world, you know, uh, should they decide to uh, begin onboarding to this new technology. Um, And you, you know, if the Lightning Network was becoming less viable as a method of doing this, um, if it was moving further away from being a risk-free rate, then you wouldn't see the fee rate continue going up, right? You wouldn't see, uh, you know, demand for chant You wouldn't see uh, channels continue going up as they are. You wouldn't see the base fee and fee rate going up as they are. And so there's still, there's rising demand for these vehicles. And with that rising demand comes more people who are willing to, you know, sort of go to California to try to mine the gold, right? So, you know, as of right now, obviously we're deep in and amidst the bear market, um, but demand for these instruments is still relatively steady. Uh, and you can bet, that, um, you know, once Bitcoin price uh, sort of reignites again, then that growth is going to amplify too. Exactly.
1: I've said before that I think Bitcoin has scaling cycles. Like we are obviously have price cycles, but we also have scaling cycles. And, you know, over the last 12 months or so, blocks, for the most part, other than this small ordinal section that we had, for the most part, blocks on the Bitcoin network have been, you know, not empty, but not full to where it's pretty easy to, send Bitcoin over over the Bitcoin network on the base layer and not pay a very high fee. But I think when we do go, kind of to your point, when we do go into another massive bull market, that's gonna, you know, bring free fee pressure up as people like demand final settlement in Bitcoin. And when fee pressure rises, people are going to be incentivized to use other scaling solutions like the Lightning Network. And then when all of a sudden you've had, you have you know, 10x or 100x more transaction volume on Lightning, that's when routing is probably going to get even more profitable.
0: 100%. And, and because you mentioned uh, the mempool, uh, uh, what way do you observe space? Do you observe it new blocks coming in from the left or new blocks being appended on the right? It's a great question.
1: Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I do the default. I don't even know which one it is. What do you do? You
0: didn't, you didn't know that you could flip it one way or the other? This is a huge I've seen the deb- Yeah, I've seen the yeah. debate of, of flipping it, but I don't know. I, I use the default. What do you use? Ah, I use the American way of doing it. New blocks are the default is new blocks get appended on the left. But uh, uh, Gigi made the argument that you know uh, we Americans, right? We read left to right. Time moves from left to right. Um, you know all you know all, all of those different arguments that that Gigi somehow has the ability to make. Um, and he he got the developers of MemPool the ability to, to actually switch it around. And so I see new blocks coming in on the right, like a true nice. American should, Joe. <laughs> I'll have
1: to look for that setting and try to flip mine and see which one I like best. But I've definitely seen the debate. Um let's go to the next audience question. So this is actually from the same guy. Um he said, "Have you and Nick, so Joe and Nick, have you guys looked into Bitcoin back stable coins which kind of resemble what Nick laid out in his book Layered Money?"
0: Yeah. So there are several uh, cool things going on when it comes to Bitcoin backed uh, stable coins. We saw early last year, the calamity that can ensue with uh, algorithmic stable coins and crypto backed stable coins. Several of those died really early on. And they tend to have really, really violent unwinds. And what people thought was a safe and easy way of holding your dollars on a blockchain turned out to be, you know, nothing more than than a ponzi scheme or something that was extremely risky. And something like stable sats, um, which is uh, by Galois, which allows you to transact dollars over lightning, um, no stable coins, no fiat integration. Um, You know, it essentially allows you, and and currently it's in beta testing. It's available on the Bitcoin Beach wallet. Essentially you can send and receive dollars um, within your Lightning wallet. So that's very cool. That's an instance of sort of the US dollar being interoperable, not necessarily a Bitcoin backed stable coin, but a stable coin, a US dollar equivalent, we'll call it, that runs atop Bitcoin Lightning. And and obviously, the the development of uh, things like Tarot, uh, which will allow users to uh, create assets and then send and receive those assets. Um, Now, obviously, you know, there's been debate about that. But what that will ostensibly allow for is for, uh, you know, obviously, there's a level of trust that goes along with this, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, that's the case of the US dollar, whether it's issued by the, uh, you know, whether it's issued by the Treasury, rather, or it's issued by a trustworthy counterparty on uh, lightning, uh, it's going to have to be issued by somebody, but tarot uh, will allow you to uh, issue assets over lightning. Uh, and ostensibly, there will be uh, US dollars, there will be US dollar equivalents, stable coins, if you will, uh, that, be, that are issued over lightning. And so as of right now there aren't um you know at least i'm not aware of uh many bitcoin backed stable coins that are you know popular or highly liquid uh, but i do know that there are the there's this emergence via stable sats and eventually via tarot where us dollars will eventually be able to be transacted over bitcoin and lightning
1: yeah it's definitely a very early space and it's, i'm excited to see how it develops but yeah it's there's nothing at this moment that's like completely taken off as far as like a bitcoin back stablecoin. Um kind of relating on to what you were just talking about, Tarot assets. You talked about stable coins. Do you envision like other assets getting used or getting like I guess created on Tarot? I know this was an audience question, he was like asking, okay, will commodities or securities and debt be issued on Tarot? I kind of have the view that like issuing physical items on a blockchain is, doesn't really make much sense. So like commodities, I'm not necessarily a fan. Really, most things on a blockchain, don't really make much sense to me, but I guess I could see like how it's easy to trade. I don't know, like shares of of certain bitcoin private private equity um, back and forth, maybe on Tarot or something like that. But then again, that might just be like skirting security regulations. Um, so what are your your thoughts on like Tarot and like what assets will be issued on it? And like are you bullish on Tarot
0: or what, generally, what do you think about Tarot? For sure. As of right now, you know I'm bullish on Terra purely because it's going to drive up uh, demand for, uh, you know, uh, efficient Lightning network uh, capital allocation, um, efficient channel management, and that's ultimately what I'm, I'm super bullish on. Right? Anything that, anything that gets created, whether it's on Bitcoin, uh, adjacent to Bitcoin, or on or adjacent to Lightning, ultimately I feel that you know so long as it's not uh, disruptive of the actual use of, of those two things i say uh, the more the merrier right because um if these ideas are being created um and it's not changing, it's not harming the way that Bitcoin's consensus mechanism, it's not harming um, the way that Bitcoin or, or Lightning functions, um, then I say the more the merrier, right? Because it ultimately drives up block space demand, it drives up demand for efficiently allocated channels, it drives up, you know, driving up capacity on the Lightning Network, that just means that it gets even cheaper to transact Bitcoin. So, you know, the idea of, you know, use cases of crypto, that's obviously why. Uh, you know, you you at Blockware are not crypto, you're Bitcoin. Us at the Bitcoin layer, we're not crypto, we're, we're Bitcoin because we recognize that the primary use case of something like Bitcoin uh, is obviously a as, a, as a hedge against monetary debasement, which has been the endless solution to all of the credit crunches that we've had over the, you know, many decades. Um, and B, uh, it allows you to actually own something, right? You know, nothing in this universe you can really own apart from uh, your body, your mind, and, and now Bitcoin. Uh, you know, can't be seized uh, if it's sitting in your head, right? And so uh, it really enables uh, actual ownership over your property, A, and B, it offers this hedge for monetary debasement that has sort of plagued uh, humanity for several, uh, you know, several decades now, particularly with the US dollar and the US dollar system. Uh, and obviously, it's much worse elsewhere. We recognize that's the use case of uh, a currency as it pertains to a blockchain. That's what a blockchain is for, that is, is a blockchain's use case, you know, there are no other use cases for it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's nonsense to say, oh, well, it can solve. I've I've heard so many in the past, and you've heard so many in the past. It can solve the healthcare system. It can so-, you know, it's for trading cards. It's for this. It's for that. Um, but ultimately, it's really just uh, that's nonsense, right? Saying that the blockchain is for anything else other than uh, verifiably, uh, you know, verifiable ownership over digital money. Is is nonsense. It's foolish, and it's basically just been a way over the last uh, several years now of companies when they have no idea or they're a lackluster version of a normal company to raise money uh, and raise capital. Uh, You know, they use block three, they use blockchain, they use the word Web three, and really, it's just a sort of a buzzword that means nothing. Um, You know, that's essentially what I view the other use cases when it comes to crypto as being. But with Bitcoin, it's very, very unique because uh, any other use case that gets created uh, still has to follow Bitcoin's consensus mechanism. And so, in the case of something like uh, Taproot, uh, uh, the Taproot wizards and all of the uh, ordinal inscriptions that have come out—that is uh, basically all it is. It's not disrupting the Bitcoin protocol itself. All it is is sort of a social, uh, cons- uh, a social viewing layer, if you will. Uh, of sort of ordering satoshis, ascribing a value to uh, uh, ascribing a, a, a an integer to these satoshis in order to view them a certain way and that 's all it is right it 's basically you know uh, someone creating a magnifying glass and looking at something a certain way it 's not actually disrupting the bitcoin protocol itself or the way that it functions and I think that tarot assets uh, will largely occur in the same way right you don 't have to touch them if you don 't want to you don 't have to send or receive them if you don 't want to uh, if you 're a lightning network operator all it 's going to do is give you more revenue because you can route them. And you don't—you're not touching anything. It's just being routed via Satoshi's. Um, that's a beautiful thing, and so it drives up demand for for uses on the Lightning Network, just like these ordinal inscriptions drive drive up demand for block space. And so, really, you know, I may not agree with the assets that get issued on Tarot. Um, you know, if <laughs> uh, NFTs begin getting issued issued on Tarot, or you know, if bonds begin getting issued on Tarot for, for certain uh, for certain companies, um, if uh, you know, um, people are allowed to buy shares in certain Bitcoin companies uh, on Tarot. I I may not necessarily agree with with any of those use cases. I'm not saying I do or I don't, but at the end of the day, it's driving up demand uh, for use of the Lightning Network. And so, frankly, I say, uh, the more the merrier. Foundation is one
1: of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product, Passport, is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air-gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code BLOCKWARE and get $10 off your passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's a very fair perspective for sure. Let's kind of dive into um, Operation Choke Point. Can you kind of explain what that is to the audience that hasn't heard about it? And
0: is it a problem for Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies
1: or even crypto companies
0: to Yeah, for sure. So Operation Choke Point um, 2.0 is coined by Nick Carter. Um, And essentially, it's used to describe this recent regulatory crackdown on uh, crypto institutions and uh, whether it's their ability to operate, uh, you know, sort sort of going after them with securities law, or whether it's uh, severing ties to traditional banking outlets. Um, Essentially, the, 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 the name of the game is to basically make it extremely difficult for Bitcoin and crypto companies to operate. Um, and sever their ties to banking partners so that there are no U.S. dollar on-ramps and they really have no ability to operate because of that, right? They can't accept user deposits um, you know, because of that. It makes it extremely hard if you don't have a banking partner that it allows you to uh, be interoperable with U.S. dollars. Uh, and one of the biggest instances of this um, is J.P. Morgan today, and I tweeted about this, J.P. Morgan severed all ties with Gemini, and that was one of Gemini's biggest banking partners, and now it wants nothing to do with Gemini. It was one of its biggest banking partners, and the other big banking partner for Gemini was Silvergate, and now Silvergate is unfortunately going under, um, you know, or at least it, it very much seems like it. Um, you know, yields on uh, Silvergate uh, senior secured uh, notes are soaring through the roof. That, that That's getting sold off very, very quickly. Um, you know, it's it's stock prices down very tremendously. And so people are really betting on uh, some kind of bankruptcy coming from Silvergate. And you're seeing them having a, a great deal of struggles. And they were one of the leading banks. They were the leading bank for, for Bitcoin and, and crypto, quote unquote. And so Basically, it's severing these crypto firms, these Bitcoin firms' ability to operate um, as as companies and regularly accept user deposits and operate as a business because they're getting cut off from U.S. dollars and dollar interoperability. And so, uh, you know, Silvergate had uh, it it serviced a lot of players that everyone knows about, right? Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Genesis, which is now you know a a whole other story. uh, they serviced uh, I believe FTX they service circle they service binance paxos all of these entities are serviced by a very select few number of banks that are willing to uh, you know do business with them Silvergate was one of them prime trust is another prime trust does uh, I believe I don't want to talk out of turn here but I believe they do Swans banking I believe they're Swan's banking partner yeah. and they are strikes banking partner right and so you know these banks that Work with crypto institutions are now uh, going under in the case of Silvergate, or severing ties entirely in the case of the more formal traditional finance, J.P. Morgan, um, and so it's really not good. And the the idea of Operation Choke Point is that this is basically uh, the regulatory authorities within the United within the United States taking everything that happened in 2022 very opportunistically and seeing it as an opportunity to finally crack down on this crypto fraud, these crypto scams uh, that have really, really harmed consumers. And in the case of frauds and scams, that's actually a good thing. That's a great thing. But by the same token, these dollar on-ramps are the same ones that service good faith Bitcoin institutions, institutions that aren't trying to do anything scummy, right? Institutions. Uh, and again, I don't know who these people's banking partners are. I'm just giving examples of good faith Bitcoin institutions um, like, like Swan Bitcoin, like River, like Strike. All of these institutions are, are, are literally saying, they say regularly, after you buy with us, take your coins off the exchange. That's a good entity by all accounts, right? A lot of these entities have gone to regulatory authorities and said, hey, can we have some more clarity here? We'd like to be folded into the window. Here, Here is all the information about what we do, right? Um, and they get treated, they get bundled up with these scams. So from the standpoint of cracking down on crypto scams right operation choke point is, is is a great thing but from the standpoint of cracking down on good faith institutions that don't have any harmful predatory products uh, which tend to be Bitcoin only institutions funnily enough they're also being bundled in with those scams so you know it's it, we're taking the good with the bad it's sort of um, you know, we're, we're we're basically being forced to eat our vegetables, right? We've already eaten our vegetables, um, but alongside with crypt- the, these crypto institutions that are now, you know, the regulatory authority is really hammering them, rightfully so, we're being, Bitcoin's being forced to eat its vegetables a second time, unfortunately. Um, and, and it's just the unfortunate reality of being associated with crypto rather than uh, being, uh, you know, thought of as two separate asset classes, which uh, you and I both know that they should be.
1: Yeah, you touched on... FDIC insurance, uh, and Silvergate. I've heard before that like FDIC insurance insures like basically one to 2% of like demand deposits, like for, I guess all us banks. So in reality, like there's not much actual insurance backing everyone's demand deposits. Even if, of course, like if every bank failed like that, would just be catastrophic. It would probably never get that bad. Um, because there'd be bailouts anyways, but I wonder if Silvergate actually did fail or got close to failing how much of a dent would that make in fdic's you know like insurance fund i guess if, if, if it's if they call it that, i don't even really know and you may not have an answer to this but um curious do you have any thoughts on that
0: yes yeah, so it certainly wouldn't have been good right if if any bank fails um you know and they have fdic insurance and the user you know the the users of that bank the people who have uh deposits with them uh, the FDIC has to pay those out. It's obviously a, a pretty big dent um, into into what the FDIC pays out, and so it's not good. And so potentially, you know, the idea of Operation Choke Point 2.0 is that this is somewhat deliberate, right? This is somewhat a coordinated, deliberate crackdown. And what you're saying could be true. It could be, uh, you know, the simple fact that the FDIC is really seeing all of this risk boiling under the surface, and they don't want anything to do with it. And so, not only are they, you know, really disallowing these good faith Bitcoin institutions from coming into the regulatory window and becoming FDIC insured, but they're also taking a look at some of these institutions who they have afforded FDIC insurance and saying, you know, let's get let's let's make sure that these institutions go under now before they get much larger and therefore they pose a much larger risk to us if, if they go insolvent and we have to pay them out. So it could, you're right. It could be a savvy decision on behalf of these authorities who would be responsible in cleaning up the mess and saying, you know, before this balloons out of control, let's, you know, let's take it out behind the shed and put a bullet in it. Uh, And, you know, it it could very well be that.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I I also imagine that like Silvergate doesn't have like, like JP Morgan probably has, you know, millions and millions of small clients that all kind of their, each of their accounts adds up to the $250,000 FDIC limit. Whereas I could see Silvergate not having that many clients, but like each client has like millions and millions of dollars in their, in their account. And so it's like FDIC really isn't covering, like, it's not a big hit because there's just not that many clients that they have to pay out for the the $250,000 minimum. But let's, let's shift into macro a little bit. Um, Interest rates really, seem to keep going higher. you know, how much higher do you guys think that they're going to go?
0: That's a great question. Um, you know, really, all this comes down to is how hot the economic data will continue being um, and how much the Fed is willing to meet that economic data that's that's hot uh, with a policy response that will take it back down to being cool again. And we know the answer to the second question. The answer is that the Fed is going to Every single hot economic data print that they find, uh, they're going to meet it with you know more hawkish rhetoric and tighter policy, and we've seen that at basically every turn. Uh, you know this this week was no exception. Yesterday and today, it's basically been the Jerome Powell show. If you turn on your television, if you turn on Bloomberg TV, it's literally no market commentary whatsoever. It's just Congress grilling Jerome Powell, and we know that this cycle in particular. Everything that Jerome Powell says, everything, every economic data print has been held under a microscope. Markets are basically operating um, – they're operating on a dime at this point. You know, Everything that the Fed says, every new economic data print, they're moving one way or the other. It's a highly volatile environment. And so in this environment, um, you know, uh, U.S. Treasury rates um, – you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, the deepest, most liquid market in the world – They provide a whole lot of signal for where they believe inflation and growth expectations are headed, as well as where they believe uh, policy rate expectations are headed. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, um, and I I think Will... Will did a good uh, 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 or uh, reflexivity research. Um, it could have been Feijao. I'm not sure, but they did uh, a tweet thread, I believe, about how. And and we've been saying this for for ages uh, over at TBL. And thankfully, I had the, the mentorship from Nick to teach me this a while back. But Fed, you know, the Fed doesn't doesn't uh, uh, move interest rates up or down, right? When when you hear the Fed uh, set interest rates 50 basis points higher, um, it doesn't mean that the the Fed uh, cranked up. You know U.S. Treasury rates. The Fed doesn't control U.S. Treasury rates, uh, nor does it control the majority of other money market rates. What the Fed does is it uses Fed funds as a communication channel for where it would like uh, front-end rates to be. And the way that it manages front-end rates is through its overnight reverse repo facility and through interest on reserve balances. Um, those are two rates that it sets is basically a floor and a ceiling for uh, short-term interest rates. And it uses Fed funds as sort of this communication channel for where it would like those to be. Um, and so basically what's happened is uh, the the US, the rate uh, the suite of U.S. Treasury rates, uh, which is set by the free market, they essentially move independently of the Fed. Sometimes they agree with where the Fed thinks rates should be, and sometimes they disagree. And uh, heading into the year, they were largely in disagreements with the Fed. And they were saying that, look, uh, we think growth and inflation is coming down. Uh, we think that you should probably pause soon, right? We, we see the terminal rate, i.e. the highest rate that the Fed achieves this cycle. That's relatively close. I think it would behoove you to pause soon. That's what the rates market was saying, because rates were falling. Uh, they were catching a bid basically all across the curve. People were comfortable parking their money uh, for 4.5% and chilling. And now, uh, throughout January and into February, and now into March, time is really flying. Uh, we've seen hot economic data print after hot economic data print. And so the rates market has said, "Uh-oh, looks like growth and inflation expectations. You know, we we should edge those up a little bit. It looks like growth is a little bit more robust and inflation is a little bit stickier. And we've seen that sticky inflation and some of the components of inflation that are harder to shift, such as uh, core PCE, core personal consumption expenditure, uh, that has actually risen month on month and it's risen on a year on year basis. That's not what the Fed wants. Um, you know, the components of that that influence inflation the most are what people are spending, and if personal consumption expenditures are rising, then the Fed sees that as no bueno. And the rates market agrees. And so The longer end of the curve, let's say the 10-year, that yield is correspondent with growth and inflation expectations. And the 10-year yield started rising pretty materially. Um, And in response, what is the Fed trying to do right now? They're trying to crack down on growth and inflation. And so what does the front end do in response? The front end also moves higher because the front end is saying, hey, look, growth and inflation are really robust. The Fed's probably going to continue hiking, and they're going to continue hiking until they start to see these measures like core PCE move down. And so that's what we've seen all throughout January, all throughout February. That's why yields are ripping through the roof uh, because growth is much hotter than expected. We've had Uh, uh, as these really, really hot economic data prints keep coming out within the labor market, within uh, uh, personal spending, those are things that the Fed wants to see turned down, not turn up. So growth and inflation is more robust than expected. And as such, in order to meet that, because inflation is elevated, the Fed's trying to kill inflation, then policy rate expectations are also rising. Um, Within Fed funds futures, the the terminal rate is now priced at 5.5%. Three months ago, it was priced at 4.5%. Three months before that, it was priced at 3%. Nobody thought that the Fed would be able to get this high because everybody was expecting, and this was what was priced in with uh, inflation swaps. Everyone was expecting that inflation would be back to 2% by June or July, Uh, and that's not the case. People are finding that inflation is stickier than expected, growth is stickier than expected, and therefore the Fed's policy response is going to have to be higher than expected. And as such, um, the rates market is now repricing upward. They're selling off very precipitously in order to sort of meet the Fed uh where they expect the fed to be
1: yeah well said so I guess what does all of that mean for Bitcoin I mean 2022 is obviously a tough year for for Bitcoin holders and Bitcoin miners what is your outlook for the rest of 2023 um, you know it seems like the Fed is getting more aggressive as you're saying does that mean Bitcoin could make new lows relative to their 2022 lows
0: or what do you think's in, in store for Bitcoin for the rest of this year That's a great question. So it all revolves around liquidity at the end of the day, and although rates continue rising precipitously, right, the cost of capital is rising, and that's going to transmit to companies, and that's going to transmit to individuals and the rate at which they can borrow, and so the economy is eventually going to slow down, right? Eventually, these five, five and a half, six percent rates are going to have to matter. In uh, through 2022, we had this regime where uh, Bitcoin was negatively correlated to rates, uh, but traditionally speaking, uh, risk. Risk assets and bonds have an inverse correlation, right? You know, they don't have a positive correlation as was the case last year. Last year, as bonds sold off and rates rose, right? Bonds were getting sold off and risk assets were getting sold off. That's not usually what you see. We've only had three other instances of that through time. I believe the years were in 1929, uh, some point in the sixties, I can't recall the year in 2022. And every single time that that's happened, um, we've had a pretty, pretty bad uh, depression a few years following it, a pretty huge, severe recession in in the years following it. You don't usually see that bond equity correlation break down or more broadly that bond risk asset correlation broke down. That was the story in 2022, but now correlations seem to be shifting where the bond equity correlation is is moving back into negative territory, which means as rates rise, it's actually not as uh, bad for risk assets as it was last year. And so long as that correlation continues to hold, really, really elevated interest rates may not have a huge effect on uh, equities and then other risk assets that trade like equities such as Bitcoin. Um, A lot of that, basically what happens when when rates begin to rise, you see multiples compression first, right? So those price-to-earnings multiples that are trading at 20, 25, 30, Tesla, super overvalued stock, those get compressed down to more reasonable levels, right? 15 to 18, Um, and then you also, so that's the first thing that happens when rates rise, it's the equity response. And then the second response is when the actual, uh, cost of capital becomes impacted by that, when companies need to roll their debt and at what rate they need to do that. And that is when you start to see an earnings compression and earnings in Q1 was very, very robust. And so we have yet to see this really elevated cost of capital impact these companies from an earnings standpoint. Uh, and so until that time comes, um, we see Bitcoin, you know, chopping around. At least I see Bitcoin chopping around pretty extensively. Um, you know, we're sort of in that limbo for firms where the, co- the this elevated cost of capital is getting transmitted to them, uh, but we're not at a point yet um, where they really, really start to feel pain. Uh, we're sort of in the beginning phases of that. And also, that being said. Um, a, we're at a very, very uh, sort of uh, great valuation level for Bitcoin right now. 20K is not only sort of your your average, uh, it's right above your average production costs for Bitcoin, but it's also right around several key levels, right? Your on-chain cost basis uh, with realized price. It's also around the 200-week moving average, which is a really, really strong technical support level. So Bitcoin is viewed as cheap here, and people are really, really willing to buy it. So there's this phase of just extreme choppiness uh, near the bottom, right? Uh, Basically, where we are now, we've been ranging here because coins have been sort of distributing from weaker hands, people saying, I'm done with this. I don't want to hold this thing anymore. This thing is a stable coin, whatever. And it's shifting to those hands that are saying, I'm going to buy it here because it's really cheap. Uh, And also, not only is Bitcoin cheap at these levels, but also liquidity. Uh, global liquidity is sort of rising at the margin, um, as measured uh, by, um, you take a look at the Treasury General accounts um, and the reverse repo facility, uh, and also take that in confluence with what other central bank balance sheets are uh, are, are doing, what other central bank reserves are doing, rather. Uh, and if their assets are rising uh, on net, then that means you know global liquidity is rising on net. And so far, uh, central bank balance sheets' assets, uh, they were falling right, all throughout uh, last year, but beginning in February, they were actually rising, right? All throughout the month of February, uh, they were rising. And so should liquidity continue to be supported, um, and uh, you know, should Bitcoin continue to, to be catching a strong bid here, we, we're probably in for a whole lot of choppiness, right? If the economy is as robust as it seems, the Fed probably has the ability to hold rates very, very high. And if that's the case, uh, there may not be very many upward catalysts uh, for Bitcoin to, to sort of shoot through the stratosphere by that same token, there aren't a great deal of downward catalysts as liquidity continues being supported globally. Uh, so that's really where Bitcoin stands, right? It stands in limbo right now. And of course, things can change on a dime, right? If global liquidity conditions begin deteriorating, Bitcoin will, you know, in all likelihood, follow follow them down. Uh, if for whatever reason, there's a credit event in the real economy um, and, uh, you know, the Fed chooses to ease, which the Fed easing at this point is, you know, a bygone memory. That was a narrative all throughout 2022. And uh, it seems to not be the case whatsoever. Um, they've been, te- their conviction has been tested several times and they're going to hold policy tight. Um, but you know, if they end up not doing that, then that would obviously be a boon for Bitcoin, but, uh, outlook for Bitcoin, um, is, uh, you know, just a whole lot of choppiness right throughout, throughout 2023.
1: Yeah. I think I'm mainly in the same boat there. Do you guys ever look at M2, uh, as like a gauge for liquidity? I, I looked at it the other day and I saw like M2 year-over-year growth was like negative. So I guess the money supply or the broad money supply was actually shrinking. And it wasn't at this low of a level since the Great Depression. Is that just like coincidence or or is that something to be concerned about?
0: You know, my view on M2 as an accurate gauge for the money supply has changed somewhat. The reason being... um. You know, for a while, like, obviously, any gauge of the money supply is just going to be incorrect. There's, you know, there's no way to measure these things accurately uh, and take signal from them. Um, But M2 is sort of, yeah.
1: Except for Bitcoin, right? With Bitcoin full node we know exactly how, many, how much Bitcoin there is and how much there ever will be. So yes, I exactly. Asterisk, Explain the difference. N- there's between- never
0: any way to know how many US dollars or any other fiat are in existence because you have to trust. But with Bitcoin, you can verify, right? Run your own full node. You can verify the amount of Bitcoin in existence. And that's a beautiful thing, right? There's no accurate measure of fiat money. If you run a Bitcoin full node, you know exactly how many Bitcoin will be issued and how many Bitcoin will be issued uh, for the rest of time. That's a beautiful thing. That's why we do what we do. That's why I have this big neon sign behind me. Um, But uh, yeah, so, so my view on M2 has changed when it comes to measuring dollar liquidity. And that's because uh, Brent Johnson tweeted uh, a few weeks ago, and he tweeted this uh, after I had my discussion on my show with Michael Howell, who's sort of the world's foremost expert on global liquidity. Uh, And and Michael Howell took the position that it really, central bank balance sheets, central bank assets mattered far more as a gauge for liquidity than something like M2 or any of these money uh, money stock measures. And what Brent Johnson also said was that M2 is really just a function of the demand for M zero, which is you know base money, um, and so you know thinking about it that way and understanding, okay, M two may not be the most accurate representation, but then also you know myself going into the Bloomberg terminal and wanting to validate what Michael Howell was saying, me going in, adding up you know uh, central bank assets together, taking into account the the the, the Treasury General Account, and the Reverse review Facility, um, and it you know it tracks basically one to one with with risk assets, and it's really remarkable, right? As, uh, you know, this uh, better proxy for global liquidity is rising rather than these measures for uh, M2 that we have, uh, risk assets rise in price. And I use the S&P 500 uh, sort of as my very liquid example of that uh, and vice versa. And M2 does work, right? Um, as a measure I've used, I've made this chart several times in the past, but you know, global M2, uh, as that rises, Bitcoin rises, as that falls, Bitcoin falls. Um, but in a period like this, it seems that central banks are getting into the practice of trying to stabilize their government bond market After the scare that we had last September, where the guilt market sold off so quickly and so fast uh, that it threatened the solvency of pension funds, who were basically collateralizing their assets against them, then... um, uh, government, it was basically you know, the shot heard around the world. It was a warning shot saying, hey, don't let your sovereign bond market go illiquid because this thing is used as collateral for all of global finance. And particularly, the US Treasury market is used as collateral for all of global finance. Uh, and so central banks around the world, particularly the US, and this is Michael Howell's assumption. And now it's increasingly my assumption that they've been taking a much more active role in managing the liquidity in their bond markets uh, so that there isn't something like the guilt crisis like we saw last September. And because of that, what happens when you're more actively intervening in your bond market? You're purchasing these, these government assets. Liquidity is rising at the margin. And so even though uh, M2 you know, is still deeply negative, you still have central bank assets that for whatever reason, and we're speculating that it's because they're supporting their bond market is rising. And so as long as liquidity is rising, then, you know, asset prices will be supported. If that changes, um, then it's a whole nother story.
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting perspective. I need to go back and, and watch that interview that you did. Um, this is probably a great spot to end it. Where can people go watch that, that podcast that you were talking about and, you know, learn more about you and what you guys are doing at the Bitcoin layer?
0: Absolutely. So you could just search the Bitcoin layer on YouTube, uh, right in the search bar above this video right now, or you could uh, go to thebitcoinlayer.com where you'll be able to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as our newsletter. Uh, every single week, we put out three pieces of content covering Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Uh, we're, we're relatively valuable if you want to keep up with what's going on in markets and, and follow them accurately. Uh, so you can go to thebitcoinlayer.com, uh, subscribe to our Substack, uh, but also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can catch all those interesting interviews that I just discussed. And uh, also find myself on Twitter at Joe Consorti, Uh, for more regular markets commentary
1: awesome yeah everyone go check that out i pretty much read every single uh newsletter you guys put out i think it's one of the best in the space for macro and bitcoin so great job there but yeah everyone go check that out um joe thanks again for coming on this was a great episode i'm sure everyone's gonna love it likewise thanks joe appreciate it man